This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Samantha Donovan, coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne. Tonight, the Russian flag banned at the Australian Open after a spectator displayed it during a match. Also, China's population may have peaked at around 1.4 billion people. Could this be the start of a long period of decline? And the singer Renee Geyer has died. She's being remembered as a trailblazer of Australian music. So her voice was this incredibly deep, husky voice. It stood out from the pack. I think for me, that's what makes you remember an artist. You can feel that pain. You can feel that soul. You can feel that power. The Australian Open has become the latest stage for the simmering tensions over the war in Ukraine. After the Russian flag was unfurled by fans at matches yesterday, Tennis Australia has stepped in, banning the display of the flags of both Russia and Belarus for the rest of the tournament. Matt Bamford prepared this report. Help the children of Ukraine tonight as tennis plays for peace. Ahead of Australia's premier tennis tournament, some of the sport's biggest stars turned out for a charity match. Tennis Plays for Peace aimed to raise money and awareness for the plight of Ukraine at the hands of Russia. Fans like this are a chance for us to show our support and show... Since Russia's invasion, debate around the presence of Russian athletes has been fierce. Players from Russia and its ally Belarus were banned from Wimbledon in 2022. Despite pressure for a similar ban at this year's Australian Open, Tennis Australia allowed them to play under a neutral banner. Tournament director Craig Tiley spelled out the controversial rules last year. Russian and Belarusian players will be eligible to play the Australian Open. The only difference would be that they cannot represent Russia, cannot represent the flag of Russia, uh, but they will be welcome to the Australian Open in January. The move was opposed by many, including Ukraine's ambassador to Australia, Vassil Moroshnyshenko. I have called for Tennis Australia to ban the participation of the Russian and Belarus um, athletes. Tennis Australia assured that they're going to be under the neutral flag. Now tensions have escalated with a Russian flag being unfurled during a match between Russia's Kamila Rakivmova and Ukrainian Katerina Bindel. It's a very traumatising experience because we see Ukrainians getting killed with that Russian flags. Uh, you know, on the banner. And uh, and for every Ukrainian, uh, no matter where he or she is, it's, it's very traumatising. Tennis Australia has stepped in, banning Russian and Belarusian flags from the tournament. But Ambassador Vassil Moroshnyshenko says the damage has been done. We would never have this kind of issue if they were banned from the very beginning, in the same way as Wimbledon did. At the end of the day, if you look at the reporting and media coverage, these uh, Russian athletes are still being introduced as Russian athletes. So it doesn't really work. That's the whole point. The only way it would work is when you don't have them participate at all. Russian-born Australian Eugene was one of the flag bearers. He told ABC Radio Melbourne he meant no disrespect. There was definitely no intention to provoke anyone. We were there just simply supporting different Russian players throughout the day. He says the ban discriminates against Russian fans. It's it's very un-Australian. This is screaming um, intolerance, intolerance. Uh, discrimination, racism, you know, how can you ban a a country's flag? Okay, Russia's invaded uh, Ukraine. It's awful. It's bad. No one wants war. 
And if you speak to a vast majority of Russians in Australia and around the world, they'll tell you the same thing. They're anti-war, they, they want peace. It's a thorny issue that sport around the world is grappling with. Sports psychologist Jeff Bond says there's a long history of sport and politics intersecting. The reality is that somewhere it's, it's, there's always a link. I mean, I think back to the Moscow Olympics, for example, you know, how it split the Australian team. Back in the 70s, Australian rugby joined the boycott of the Springboks. Uh, and, and that was part, part of the dismantling of, of apartheid in South Africa. I don't know that athletes ought to be able to wander around the world and not be interested in and somewhat connected with politi- you know, politics. I mean, we're talking about the Ukrainian players here, but it, it must be difficult for some of the Russian players too, who must feel pretty uncomfortable. It's hard to know where to draw the line, but Jeff Bond believes the Australian Open has fallen short. It just seems to me that sport sometimes can be pretty self-centred. All, all these athletes want to do is uh, to continue on and, and you know, play, play their sport and earn their dollars and move on to the next country. I don't know. Uh, it just something seems to be missing in the, in the ethics or the morals around, around this whole business of sport and politics and sport and wars. And, and I, I think sometimes people get it right and sometimes they miss the mark. And I, personally, I think, I think the Australian Open executive has missed the mark on this one by allowing Russian and Belarusian players to actually play. Yes, I think so. Sports psychologist Jeff Bond speaking there with Matt Bamford. China's population shrank last year for the first time in six decades, with experts saying the growth of the world's most populous country has most likely peaked. Official figures show a population of 1,411,000,000, down slightly on the year before. Demographers say the ageing and shrinking of China's population will have consequences for the economy. Our East Asia correspondent Bill Bertels joins us now. Bill, among the figures announced today was a birth rate 10% lower than the year before. What's been driving that change? Well, Sam, this has been a process happening for quite a few years now, although the birth rate plunged significantly between 2022 and 2021. So the pandemic lockdown restrictions that have been in place very strictly in China probably had a factor in that large drop. Uh, But overall, it is uh, increased uh, female participation in the labour force, which has been a long-term trend now in China. Uh, That's uh, also seeing uh, both uh, men and women obviously push back the age that they get married. Um, So these are the sort of social changes we've seen in other places in Asia, like Japan, Taiwan, South Korea. It's very much happening in China now. And um, the costs of raising a child too in China, uh, things like additional tutoring and so forth, also very expensive. Remember, most people live in apartments in major cities where property prices are quite uh, quite hefty. So all these factors combined, Sam, have really led to a very, very low birth rate, one of the world's lowest now. Well, as you say, it comes during the pandemic and and after China having those very heavy restrictions on people's movement. Are demographers expecting it could pick up again now that the country's opening up? Not really. Um, Obviously, that 10% drop in in the birth rate uh, in just the last year, um, you'd expect to see um, maybe a bit of a pickup or less of a decline or even an increase 
in the birth rate, uh, perhaps marginally, because uh, China now has opened up and you no longer have so uh, so many strict uh, strict measures. Um, but the long term trend is pretty well baked in. You're looking at a population which, by 2050, will be made up roughly of about one third retirees or people uh, over the mid 60 age point. So this is going to have a tremendous stress on the country's economy and its labour force. And I was speaking to Victoria University's Xiaojian Peng earlier today, and she said that beyond 2050, uh, the population is likely to plummet even further. Based on UN population projection suggests, you know, China's population by the end of this century um, in the medium uh, variant, will, um, the total population will be only more than half of the current uh, population. But in China, you know, um, Shanghai Academy of Social Sciences they also uh, have their projection. And um, if China's total fertility rate continue to decline from current 1.15, at the end of this century, China's population will be less than half less than half um, uh, compared with today. Quite a dramatic figure. And, and Bill, the Chinese government has also announced a 3% gross domestic product growth for the last year, a, a lot lower than Beijing was aiming for, I understand. Is, is it expected there'll be a quicker recovery now the country has ditched many of those COVID restrictions and opened up? Uh, yes, uh, but firstly, I should say, Sam, this uh, latest figure based on the last quarter of 2022, came in a lot higher than what the estimates were. China's government claims that the economy somehow grew not only at the same pace as a year earlier, but even expanded by 2.9% in the final quarter of the year. That's despite COVID restrictions and mass outbreaks in major cities culminating with a nationwide mass uh, infection. Somehow, somehow the economy supposedly grew even more than a year earlier when uh, there were far fewer COVID uh, interruptions. So uh, whether or not this annual figure of 3% is accurate, I think there are plenty of economists who are raising eyebrows about it. The point, though, is now that the restrictions are basically done away with, um, you would expect, and certainly the Chinese government's hoping for, a quicker recovery to something similar to what we've seen pre-pandemic, 5 maybe 6% growth. It'll probably be up even more by the end of uh, 2023 because it will be based on a year-on-year figure. The bottom line, I think, for uh, Australians, even though there are export industries that are still uh, subject to restrictions, is that uh, China should be bouncing back uh, quite significantly this year after three years of pretty anemic growth. Bill, thanks for explaining all that. Bill Bertels is the ABC's East Asia correspondent. This is PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. Ahead, remembering Gina Lollabrigida, the Italian actress of Hollywood's golden age who was described as the most beautiful woman in the world. If you like, the stereotype of the Italian beauty was encapsulated in her. I mean, uh, fiery eyes uh, and a provocative uh, figure. I mean, uh, the stereotype of the time. Indigenous rights advocates have welcomed the Victorian government's decision not to give police any new powers when the state's public drunkenness laws are abolished. Decriminalising public drunkenness has long been seen by advocates as an important step towards reducing the number of Aboriginal deaths in custody. The police union, though, wants new laws to allow them to deal with intoxicated people, but the government says that's not going to happen. David Sparks has more. 
Victoria's Police Association says its members need some way to deal with people who are causing problems while drunk, even if it does support the move to decriminalise it. The association's secretary, Wayne Gatt, says stronger powers to move people on would have been appropriate. Police to this point have had the capacity to take those people into custody for their own protection and the protection of others around them, others in their orbit, I suppose, that need protection too. That will not be available or an option for police post this reform. The laws that currently criminalise public drunkenness in Victoria will be replaced by what the state calls a health-based approach, where intoxicated people are taken to a sobering up centre or another safe place. The change was due to happen in November last year, but it's been delayed by 12 months because of the pandemic. Wayne Gatt acknowledges that police will still have other powers they can use, but he says those might not be enough to prevent a more harmful crime being committed. And so what police will have to do in some circumstances is actually wait for an offence to be committed, and then they will be able to use those existing powers they have. But we say that's fundamentally that's fundamentally the wrong approach. I mean, if your son, daughter, mother or father is injured or assaulted by a drunk person, if they end up injured or worse, you'll want to know what the authorities did to prevent it. He says New South Wales is an example of a state where police have been given stronger laws to move people on rather than putting them in custody. But Indigenous rights campaigners say the government's decision not to provide any replacement powers when public drunkenness is decriminalised is the right move. Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service CEO Narita Waite explains. There are already effective powers in place um, for police to address people who present at risk um, to community. Uh, We note this has been well looked at by a number of experts far more qualified than myself and it's rather broad consensus. The Victorian government committed to scrapping public drunkenness laws after an inquest into the death of Yorta Yorta woman Tanya Day in 2017. She was asleep on a train before she was arrested and taken to the Castlemaine police station. She hit her head at least five times while in a holding cell and died in hospital 17 days later. Associate Professor Hannah McGlade from Curtin University Law School in Western Australia says this area of reform is a nationwide issue and simply being drunk shouldn't be enough for a person to be arrested. It shouldn't be a crime. You can be intoxicated in your own home. And the the issue is that Aboriginal people uh, are often... Um, have been policed, over-policed and and charged for this so-called crime. It's caused uh, very high rates of interaction, incarceration and, and, and even led to the death recently in Victoria of a, an Aboriginal grandmother, Miss Day. Associate Professor Hannah McLeod from Curtin University. David Sparks reporting. The surge in crime in the Northern Territory has prompted the Mayor of Alice Springs to formally request the Albanese government send federal police or even soldiers in to help restore law and order. The NT police mounted a major operation in the town before Christmas, but they say they've had to scale it back because their resources are overstretched territory-wide. Jane Barden reports. A major Northern Territory police operation targeting young people who steal cars and trash businesses has been scaled back because of overstretched resources. Now the town's mayor, Matt Patterson, has asked the federal government for assistance. I've reached out to the Attorney General's department federally to ask for some assistance on a national level. This is no different to a flood or a storm. This is a crisis. We need help. So whether that is the AFP, whether that is the army, we need them now. 
Asked by the ABC for a response, the Minister Mark Dreyfus's office says they plan to set up a meeting with the Mayor. The Defence Department said in a statement, law and order is the NT government's responsibility. The NT Police Commissioner Jamie Choker says the Mayor's request is an overreaction. We're trying to treat a problem with a belief that we can arrest our way out of it. Coming in with a jackboots approach I don't think is an appropriate way and I certainly don't think it's what the intention of the Australian Defence Force is. NT Police Minister Kate Warden. We are not sitting on our hands. We continue to work all the time to make sure that Alice uh, is a safe place and a great place for people to live. Alice Springs Aboriginal Community Leader Michael Little is among those who thinks federal support is necessary. Something is needed and necessary for the town of Alice Springs. Considering that the small population it has is subject to this level of crime. Are you worried really though that the flip side of dealing with the crime is more Indigenous people ending up in prison? Look, in these prisons are the only places where there's structures and uh, purpose because when people are out there are no structures there is no purpose the nt already has the highest incarceration rate nationwide and second highest indigenous prison population at 85 percent and now the prisons are bursting 80 more beds are having to be added to alice springs jail the darwin prison built eight years ago to double capacity to 1250 is now full Kate Warden again. I will anticipate that over time those numbers will diminish as people are sentenced to programs that actually help them change their lives. An inquest into the NT's most recent Aboriginal prison death in Durban heard today escalating incarceration is increasing a catastrophe of deaths in custody, something the Royal Commission made recommendations to prevent 30 years ago. 31-year-old Bernard Hector took his life inside in 2021 after being taken off court-ordered suicide watch. His brother Aaron is looking for answers about why he's become another statistic. I just want to find out what happened in the prison. Um, they should have been checking up on him you know, all the time because he was there by himself. And it goes for um, everyone else as well in the prison. The prison guards should look after them, watch them. Otherwise, something might happen Like to my brother, what happened, see? Aaron Hector talking to Jane Barden. Australia's nearest neighbour, Papua New Guinea, faces some of the most significant health challenges in the world. A group of Australian health experts and politicians is there at the moment to assess what support we can offer to help combat diseases like tuberculosis and HIV. And one of the biggest issues they've identified is the lack of trained health workers. Here's Catherine Gregory. PNG has one of the highest rates of HIV, malaria and tuberculosis in the world. And it's also home to emerging multi-drug resistant TB2. With 90% of the population living in rural areas and unable to access healthcare, as well as high incidence of sexual and gendered violence and poverty, combating these diseases has been very difficult. We're very concerned uh, about the potential for infectious diseases uh, such as HIV, uh, and malaria to, to continue to escalate. Daryl O'Donnell is the CEO of the Australian Federation of AIDS Organisations and is part of a delegation of Australian health experts and politicians in PNG at the moment. You know, there's a special burden on us to, to be thinking about how can we reach out uh, across borders uh, to our neighbours uh, to, uh, to be providing assistance and help uh, on these issues. I think one of, the, one of the things that can feel overwhelming is... Uh, 
uh, is that there are challenges in all directions, whether it's uh, getting transport, you know, a patient being able to get to a clinic, uh, whether it's a healthcare workforce, uh, you know, just like in Australia, uh, the challenge of finding nurses and doctors and dentists. And, and sometimes, you know, very, very obvious and practical challenges. Uh, you know, the electricity supply might not always be secure. Throw in the COVID pandemic and Mr O'Donnell says it really set the country back. So during COVID, a lot of uh, resources uh, diverted. Um, uh, the attention of healthcare workers, the attention of, um, of officials diverted to COVID. Uh, and now we're seeing the real effects of that, where uh, uh, where preventive health programs have, um, where people might not have been screened for disease. He says more peer programs to help educate and encourage people to access care and testing is essential, particularly to overcome the issue of stigma. Whether it's for young women who are of uh, reproductive um, age, whether it's for uh, members of key populations, uh, such as men who have sex with men or sex workers, uh, where um, stigma can be a real barrier, an incredible barrier to people stepping forward to access uh, HIV testing. The delegation is looking at TB testing and treatment programs, the HIV peer support initiative and the malaria outreach. It's also looking at new ways to screen and treat women in remote areas against cervical cancer, which is the second most common cancer for women in PNG. Independent MP Sophie Scamps is part of the delegation and is also a doctor. She says health workers, though, are asking for very basic things. So they were asking us for things like we need bicycles because people can't get their medication because they have to walk more than 10, you know, it's more than 10 kilometres to the closest clinic and they're not, they're not feeling well or even just simply phones that work so that they can communicate with each other. And she says the big missing piece for the health system in PNG is the healthcare workforce. So just helping train doctors and nurses in the workforce would be one of the fundamental things that Australia could help with. That's the Independent MP Sophie Scomps ending Catherine Gregory's report. The Australian jazz and blues singer Renee Geyer, who is known for her deep, husky voice, is being remembered as a soul diva and legend of Australian music. The 69-year-old has died in a Geelong hospital after surgery. Rachel Mealy looks back at her life. Renee Geyer didn't think her voice was anything special, but started to pay attention to the reactions of others when she sang. It wasn't a big thing that I could sing. It's just when other people started thinking I was really great. People's mouths opened agape. I started thinking, well, I must be pretty good. So I just started doing it for a living and it was enjoyable and I kept doing it. Renee Geyer went on to sing for five decades, most recently performing just a month ago. She died in hospital following surgery to her hip when doctors discovered inoperable lung cancer. Zan Rowe is the ABC's music correspondent. Renee Geyer came onto the scene when she was a teenager in the 1970s in Sydney and she would go on to make music and sing for about five decades. The 70s was really when she shot to fame. You know, she was known for her beautiful husky vocals and also very much known for doing it her way. After playing with a number of bands, Renee Geyer released her first solo album in 1973. Then in 1975, her chart-topping single, Heading in the Right Direction, was released. Always on the outside, nobody wanted me. 
She also worked with a whole bunch of other really big names. You know, she was a sought-after vocalist, collaborating with people like Sting, uh, Joe Cocker and Chaka Khan. So she was loved in Australia but also internationally recognised for that iconic voice. Renee Geyer never won an Australian Record Industry Award known as an ARIA but was inducted into its Hall of Fame in 2005. Zan Rowe says like many in her generation, her fame overseas was mostly unknown to Australians. In Australia we tend to sort of, you know, uh, when people go overseas we sometimes forget about them or sometimes we think that they're they're worth more if they go overseas. With Renee, she sort of did fly under the radar, but I think that anyone that you would speak to, even if she never won an ARIA, even if she didn't chart as much as maybe she should have, she was so well respected in the scenes that she came from and very much in those scenes in the early days of jazz and and blues and soul, the the sort of genres of music that let her voice live its, its true power. So I think that while she may not have been a chart topper like Olivia Newton-John, who we recently farewelled as well, she was definitely someone who was hugely respected in the Australian music industry. She says Renee Geyer will be remembered for her distinctive, soulful voice. This was an artist that really stood out head and shoulders above the rest, not just for the way her voice sounded, but also because it just really popped in a, an Australian music scene in the 1970s where there were other female vocalists who weren't sounding like that. So her voice was this incredibly deep, husky voice. It stood out from the pack. I think for me that's what makes you remember an artist, but it also gives the quality of her music um, a, a living history, you know, you can feel that pain, you can feel that soul, you can feel that power. And she had that uh, as she got older in the five decades that followed. She she kept that and she kept that power and she'll be an icon for many who grew up with her but for the many women in particular who have followed in her footsteps, uh, an absolute icon of Australian music. In The great Renee Geyer and before her, the ABC's music correspondent, Zan Roy. Well, to another very different female entertainer now, Gina Lollabrigida, the Italian actress who became a screen idol in Hollywood's golden age, has died at the age of 95. She worked alongside some of the biggest film stars of the 1950s and 60s, including Humphrey Bogart, Tony Curtis and Burt Lancaster. But she stepped away from acting to start a second career as a sculptor and photojournalist. Here's Hannah Dawood. Nicknamed La Lolo, Gina Lola Brigida was one of the last surviving icons of the glory days of Hollywood. At the peak of her career, Gina Lola Brigida was described as the most beautiful woman in the world, after the title of one of her movies. But there was much more to this woman than physical attractiveness. She liked to claim that she became an actor almost by mistake. I was uh, a student in art school, painting, and... Uh, they stopped me on the street and they asked to do the movie. <laughs> so I really, I didn't uh, want to be a star, but uh, in spite of that, I finished to be a star. Her big international break came in John Huston's Beat the Devil, which cast her opposite Humphrey Bogart. He famously said she made Marilyn Monroe look like Shirley Temple. The stereotype of the Italian beauty was encapsulated in her. I mean, brunette, vibrant, uh, with uh, uh, fiery eyes uh, and a provocative uh, figure. I mean, uh, was uh, the, the stereotype of the time. Riccardo Schiru from the Melbourne-based Italian newspaper Il Globo 
He says she represented Italy's emergence from the darkness of World War II. She represented uh, the Italians uh, everywhere as a sign of success, of, uh, you know, glamour and so on and forth. She also made several trips to Australia. She was also a talented um, singer and, uh, and she was here for a, for a series of concerts. I personally saw her in the 90s um, during an event that was organised uh, at the Crown Casino here in Melbourne. Uh, but in the time that she came in the 70s, she was uh, attending two charity galas organised by the Italian communities in Melbourne and Sydney. Also in that decade, she became the face of Lego's tomato paste and sauces in Australia helping the brand develop an Italian image. In the 1980s, she made a few appearances in American TV shows The Love Boat and Falcon Crest before she turned her focus to photography and politics. She scooped the world with a rare photo shoot and interview with Cuban leader Fidel Castro. There was work for UNICEF, the United Nations and an unsuccessful run for a seat in the European Parliament. In 2018, she was awarded a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Movie is a magic is uh, not like the other art. You can uh, be known all over the world just uh, with one movie. But I did uh, movies in uh, Hollywood. I did movies in England, in Italy, in Africa, <laughs> all over the, the world. And uh, they loved me. And I tried to give all my best in all the movies. She remained active in politics well into her 90s. Last year, she stood for the Italian Senate, but was unsuccessful. For Hannah Dawood reporting, thanks for joining me for PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. Good night. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.